0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys.
1: You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
2: On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill talk about this week's North American Leaders Summit, U.S.-Japan trade relations ahead of Prime Minister Kishida's visit, and they also talk about the new chairman of House Ways and Means and what it portends for the Republican trade agenda. Hi, Bill. Hi, Scott. Hope you're both doing well this week. Certainly a lot of news and happenings around town in Washington and elsewhere. Let's kick off with our neighbors. This week, President Biden attended the North American Leaders' Summit Why is the commercial relationship of our North American partners so important and what came out of the leadership summit?
1: Well, as forecast last week by the trade guys, uh, there was not much on the agenda when it came to commercial affairs. We didn't expect them to say much about trade. And as it turns out, they didn't. There was uh, relatively little mentioned in the concluding joint statement. There was talk about cooperation on semiconductors, which given the amount of subsidies available For the semiconductor industry and the importance of those investments. It's no wonder there's a friendly competition for the locus of those investments. Overall, the U.S.-Canada relationship and the U.S.-Mexico relationships have a number of complications and issues where trade didn't really take a front row seat. So that's kind of what we expected. It's kind of what we got. That said, these summits or these leaders meetings are an outgrowth of the improvements in commercial relations between the three countries. You can go back within my business career, and there was a time, of course, when Canada's two political parties, the main difference was the relationship to the U.S. The Conservative Party of Canada did everything they could in economic policy to exclude the U.S., keep the U.S. out of Canadian affairs. So there was a great deal of tension about the U.S.-Canada commercial relationship, despite our long alliances. Mexico, U.S.-Mexico relationship has been how i had to describe it prickly for a long time. A famous uh, quote from Portofino Díaz, the president of Mexico, summarizes it well, which, alas, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. So these relationships that are important and need to be managed, they are our number one and three trading partners, have been for a long time, have been since before the NAFTA, and Canada remains our largest trading partner and a very important investor in the United States. But what we have managed here is a North American set of rules for mainly for making things, but rules for doing business. And those rules are really important because they help make companies throughout North America more efficient. They help make the products produced by North American firms globally competitive. And they're very important. And one of the reasons they're effective is because they're predictable. They work the same today as they did yesterday. And uh, these are rules that everyone agreed to. They're applied equally among the parties and they're enforced by mutual consent, which if you consider the size of the United States versus the economic heft of either Mexico or Canada is almost like a miracle. I mean, it's the right way to do things. It's a very productive way. If the speed limit on the street in front of your house is 35 miles an hour, it ought to be 35 miles an hour whether you're driving a Ford or a Ferrari. And that's a good way to make rules. It works in the trading system very well. It's practiced in North America to a great extent. We all benefit from it. Now, it isn't always easy. And I think that's where Bill is going to pick up the story, because we, as we also forecast last week, we had decision on auto rules, where it was a, a dispute of interpretation between Canada and Mexico on one hand and the United States on the other. Well, let me
0: add first to what Scott said about about the event. It appears there, there's no public acknowledgement that they discussed any of the outstanding bilateral with different countries uh, trade issues. The big three for the United States are energy, corn, and they oh energy and corn and dairy. Those appear not to have been resolved. They did agree on program of cooperation on semiconductor investment, which is really going to be an effort to. I think, do two things. One, to capture as much of the money that's out there, including the U.S. government money and subsidies as, as they can. I think that they also agreed to do the same thing on uh, critical minerals, which is important because Canada has a lot of them. And in the search for critical minerals that don't come from China, which is going to be incentivized, if you will, by the Inflation Reduction Act, which prohibited the uh, EV tax credit uh, from being applied to vehicles that contain Chinese minerals or parching components. I think the big winners in the, in the mineral hunt are going to be Canada and, and Chile, both of whom have substantial amounts of some of the minerals in question. The issue there, of course, is also processing and the creation of processing facilities. So money again and subsidies is an issue there, but I think for the Canadians and the Mexicans in particular, it, it's once again a supply chain issue. How do we get into, in this case, the battery supply chain, and how do we get into the uh, critical minerals for things besides batteries, supply chains, and become more thoroughly integrated into the uh, what should be a North American economy, which was the idea of NAFTA in the first place, something that... Trump didn't pay much attention to, but uh, I think we're going back in that direction. And there's all... Uh, Just
1: a footnote uh, on the the issue of minerals. Uh, Fun fact, a battery-powered electric vehicle takes six times the amount of minerals to build as a gasoline-powered conventional vehicle. So every time you switch a gasoline-powered car for an electric vehicle, you need six times the basic minerals that's uh, why it's such an opportunity. And
0: this is going to become more important going forward as demand for these things goes up exponentially. So the other thing that they, they may or may not have done, which is a little bit uh, interesting and, and peculiar, is that the Mexican government announced that they had set up a task force to determine how to have fewer imports coming into North America. And they not only, the Mexicans not only announced that, they announced the names of the four people that they're putting on the task force and that there would be four from each of the three countries. It appears the Canadians and the Americans have not said anything about that yet. So it's hard to say whether this is a fantasy of the Mexican government or this is something they actually agreed to. And it'll be interesting to see what that means. You know, it sounds vaguely protectionist. How do we prevent imports? But it could be how do we develop nearshoring and friendshoring and, you know, ways that Encourage companies to do business here rather than to rather than to import. So there were some things started in the cooperation area. Something that did not come up at the summit but came up a day later, uh, which Scott alluded to, was the decision, the long-awaited decision in the automobile dispute settlement case. The United States lost. I think we talked about this in a previous episode. The question is about how you determine content and whether you basically round up, which is what the Canadians and the Mexicans claimed had been negotiated, or whether you don't, which was a Bob Lighthizer interpretation of the agreement. What the panel found was kind of interesting. They found wholly in favor of Canada and Mexico, and they found that what the agreement said was what the Canadians and the Mexicans said that it said. More interestingly, the panel also found that the United States government had acknowledged that that was the correct interpretation of the treaty, both before and after it was signed. So what that does in a backhanded way is essentially say that everybody agreed on this at the time, including the United States, and that the United States subsequently made a reinterpretation of the rule unilaterally. And that's what was done in. The good news, I'm not sure if there is any good news, but the relative good news is that the U.S. reaction to losing was far more temperate than their reaction to losing the, the two wto cases steel tariffs and, and hong kong labeling in both cases the USTR denounced the decision said this was a matter of national security for the united states how they made that leap for you know labeling hong kong items as made in china is beyond me but and that nobody can tell the united states what to do on security they didn't say those things on the mexican ruling And what they did say was that we're going to uh, engage Mexico and Canada to work out a resolution of this problem. Under the agreement, that's what they're supposed to do. There is no appeal process in the dispute settlement. So the panel is the panel and we all have to live with it. And the next step is supposed to be a negotiation to uh, determine what to do about it. All in all, I think the, the perfect answer would have been to say, you know, we lost, we don't agree, but we're going to comply, period. And compliance, in this case, is rather easy. You simply change your interpretation of the rule. So not saying that we're going to fight it is a good good thing, but saying just that we're going to negotiate suggests that the fight isn't over. It sounds like we're going to do what the Canadians have done on dairy, which is to change things, and, and then at which point the Mexicans and the Canadians will say, not good enough, you know, and then we do the whole dispute settlement thing all over again. I hope we avoid that. I hope the United States can do something that's institution-affirming, and simply go along with the decision, but remains to be
1: seen.
2: Well, Bill, if we could go back to one thing you said about the administration's response to this panel ruling and how it differs from the recent response to the WTO panel ruling, do you think it's fair to say that we could discern that the administration's approach is basically to favor regional trade agreements over a multilateral infrastructure, or is that reading too much into it?
0: I think it reads too much into it. I think they didn't make a national security argument in this dispute settlement process. I don't think they could make it. They did in the WTO cases both times. And I mean, they were able to in the WTO cases because the WTO rules have an exception for uh, national security. I mean, our argument did not prevail that these qualified for the exception, but the exception is there. And I don't think you have that opportunity in the Mexican case so I think they just argued it on the merits and of what was negotiated. So I wouldn't read that much into it, but I do interpret it as a good sign that they don't want to do things that will undermine the agreement, and they want to act in a way that will reaffirm the trilateral relationship. And that's very important, and that's, I think it's good news.
2: Well, let's turn now to another dialogue that's taking place this week, which involves Japan. Uh, The prime minister is coming to meet with President Biden tomorrow. I think one of our colleagues here at CSIS noted that roughly half of the Japanese government is in town in Washington this week. So it's created quite the buzz. What's on the agenda? What can we expect in terms of bilateral trade discussions?
1: Well, Japan is a vitally important security partner of the United States. Uh, it is obviously a treaty ally of the U.S. It's part of what the security people call the Quad, The India, Australia, Japan, and the United States form the Quad in terms of defense coordination. And there's a major security pledge on the part of the Japanese government. Increased defense spending from roughly 1% of the economic output to 2% in the relatively short term. That's good news because it's not lost on Japan that China's ambitions in the Pacific require a counterweight or counterbalance. And it's great news for the United States to have an ally who's stepping up the way Japan is. So from a military cooperation standpoint, I think this is a, uh, an important and, and productive thing to reinforce between the two nations. What's interesting is how little there is the United States has to say about economics. Keep in mind, Japan has long been one of our top five trading partners. Before China opened up, it was our number two trading partner. So it's a very important source of imports and exports, destination for U.S. exports. And it's a major investor in the United States. So there's a a big relationship commercially. And as I learned from working in the East Asia and the Pacific during my corporate career, foreign policy is economic policy in that part of the world. That's what makes the most sense. Most of the day-to-day interactions between governments are about commercial or economic matters. And economic openness and, and market access is, a, is something governments talk about all the time. But for some reason, the Biden administration uh, is absent on, on the issue. There's no proposal for a bilateral free trade agreement with Japan. There hasn't been one for a long time. The Trump administration did conclude a bilateral agreement that was fairly narrow in scope, but there's no commitment to go any further. Obviously, we promoted the Trans-Pacific Partnership in its formative days and were among the economies convincing Japan to join. And then the United States walked away and hasn't returned. And then while there is the, the IPEF, a lot of people, including myself, consider that pretty weak sauce when it comes to real issues of market access. So it's great from a foreign policy standpoint and a a security policy standpoint that the U.S.-Japan relationship appears strong and has a positive agenda. I think it would be better with an economic agenda that looks absent to me. I can predict, I think,
0: four things that will be discussed. There's some old standbys. The Japanese don't miss an opportunity to tell the American president that the United States should should join CPTPP. This has been the Japanese position from the beginning. It was their position that we should not have dropped out of TPP. Multiple prime ministers have maintained this position. It's not going to change. And they don't miss an opportunity like this one to say directly to the president, you know, really the right answer here is to rejoin CPTPP. Nobody expects the president to say, oh, that's right, we'll do that tomorrow. But the point will be made. I think the Japanese will also discuss their views about the state of IPEF, where it stands. They have been a strong supporter of IPEF and were allegedly instrumental in getting some of the other Asian nations to join when some of them might have been uh, reluctant. The two issues that I just mentioned are linked because I think the Japanese view is that the way to get the United States back to CPTPP is to get them to accept as many CPTPP-like commitments as they can. And so I think the Japanese goal in IPEF is to make it look as much like CPTP as possible and then be able to say to the Americans, well, you've accepted all these things. You know, it's a very small step to accept the rest. I mean, IPEF is pretty far away from CPTPP in terms of market access. But in some of the other areas, digital trade being one, there's a lot of discussion there that will be relevant to uh, what is in CPTPP. There's been a lot of debate, for example, in the IPF negotiations as to whether the parties, the 14 countries, should look to existing digital agreements, of which there are a bunch, as a template for um, an IPF agreement. And so, you know, there's the USMCA digital provisions. There's the CPTPP digital provisions. There are, there is a US Japan bilateral agreement that addresses that. Singapore is involved in a couple digital agreements with Australia, and I believe Chile, that raise deals with uh, digital issues from a slightly different perspective. So one of the debates in the IPEF negotiations is going to be what's an appropriate model, or maybe one from column A and one from column B. So I suspect this is not something you discuss at the head of state level in detail, but I suspect the Japanese will say something about its importance and the need for a robust set of digital provisions in the IPF. The uh, third thing, uh, which will come from the American side, I expect, is uh, on export controls, where we issue our October 7th regulations, which we've talked about here in the past unilaterally, and acknowledged from the beginning that they won't be fully effective unless they can be multilateralized, which in this case really means getting the Japanese, the Dutch, and the Koreans on board And there has been predictions for the last month. The Japanese and the Dutch are on the verge of of agreeing to uh, adopt the kind of uh, regulations that the Americans have already put out. But that hasn't happened yet. And because it hasn't happened, I would expect that it'll be a topic tomorrow at the summit. And that's one where it won't be the Japanese pressing the United States. It'll be the United States pressing the Japanese. It's also one possibly where there could be an outcome. Uh, This is not a new issue. It's been brought up multiple times. Our officials have traveled there. There have been lots and lots of discussions. It may well be that this particular cake has been baked and it's just waiting for the, the action forcing event to take it out of the oven and show it to everybody. So stay tuned for that. Even if that doesn't happen, I'm pretty confident it's going to come up and be raised. So there will be discussions. But aside from that, I'm not sure there will be outcomes, at least in the trade area.
2: Bill, I think that was actually one of your one-liners from a couple uh, sessions ago, which was, there will be discussions. <laughs> so I think that's generally a, a safe a prediction in the trade world.
0: I'd rather say there will be
1: cake, but
2: we'll hey, see. Sometimes cake and discussions can coincide. So we can
0: have we can have our cake and...
1: And discuss it, too. Discuss, <laughs> yeah, talk yeah have
2: it. your cake and discuss it, too. That'll be our, our next T-shirt iteration. Let's turn now to domestic politics. <clears throat> There has been some news on ways and means. It looks like uh, Representative Jason Smith of my home state of Missouri has prevailed and will become the chairman. What can we glean from this about the Republican trade agenda?
0: Well, you can speculate. It's not clear. Of the candidates that were running, Jason Smith of Missouri, Adrian Smith of Nebraska and Vernon Buchanan from Florida. Jason Smith was regarded as the, I guess, most populist and least traditional trader of the bunch. Vern Buchanan was regarded as as the one that is most in the, in the Kevin Brady mold of supporting what I guess you would call now traditional trade agreements that involve more market access. And Adrian Smith from Nebraska representing geographically, most of the state was very much uh, involved in, in agriculture exports, as you might imagine, and, and appreciated the importance of trade agreements. Jason Smith has had a more of a populist program. What he has talked about so far is mostly China, 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 and how we're going to be tough on China. And there he's got lots of company. And he's not been too specific about exactly what he has in mind. There is, it's worth noting, digress a second, one of the other things that the new Republican majority did is set up a select committee on competition with China, chaired by Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. The thing to remember about that committee is it doesn't have any legislative authority. So expect lots of hearings and lots of proposals, but the proposals will then go to legislative committees for action. And so Ways and Means may end up doing some things by virtue of, of that committee. Congressman Smith has also promised more oversight. And they've all promised more oversight. The specific in the trade area, I think it's going to be IRS oversight. We can, that's a given. The specific trade item that they flagged for intensive interrogation, I guess, is is the uh, kind of an old one at this point, the WTO vaccine waiver issue, where the United States ended up supporting a narrow TRIPS waiver for vaccines for, for COVID. This was over the dead bodies of Republicans in Congress and the pharmaceutical industry. And there's been a continuing guerrilla warfare uh, about that decision, because, you know, part of it was punted. The decision that the WTO made was narrow and was not nearly as as broad an exemption as the Indian and South African wa- South Africans wanted. But a further discussion was teed up, which was supposed to end last month and didn't, about expanding the waiver. And the U.S. position on that has been fuzzy. In fact, basically, Ambassador Ty kicked the can by asking the International Trade Commission to do an analysis of what the impact of a broader waiver would be. That's probably a nine-month project. So, you know, you're not going to see a U.S. position for a while. The Republicans are very upset that the United States took the first step and even supported the modest waiver. So they've demanded all the papers, all the notes, you know, all the information, internal documents about that decision. And you can be sure there will be hearings about that. I don't think that leads anywhere, but it'll be up there. The other thing to note is that with the change of majority, that means there's a change of committee ratios. And Ways and Means is one of the committees that has maintained a high margin for the majority. The, a number of Congresses ago, I forget which party it was, decided that appropriations, Ways and Means, and rules, I think were the big three, would have not have a one or two-seat majority for the for the majority party, which is what most of them will have, because, you know, there's only a ratio is what, 222 to 213. So you're going to see probably a one or two or maybe three vote margin on most of the committees. Ways and Means Committee, though, is going to be 25 Republicans and 18 Democrats, which is the reverse of what it was the last two years when it was 25 Democrats and 18 Republicans. So the ratio hasn't changed, but the composition has changed. What that means in practical terms is 10 new Republicans uh, are being added. It's 10 because there were some retirements, uh, Congressman Brady being the most uh, the most notable one. And there, nobody leaves out in particular, although it's significant that they've added two representatives from New York, which currently has zero on the committee, Claudia Tenney and Nicole Maliotakis, who is my son's representative because she represents Staten Island. They added one from California, Michelle Steele. They added one from Texas, Beth Van Dyne, and all of those are women, incidentally. And so female representation on the committee is going to go way up. There's a woman from uh, Minnesota, Michelle Fishback, who is added as well. And from my perspective, it's good news. There's another Pennsylvanian on the committee, Brian Fitzpatrick, who represents, I think, largely Bucks County in eastern Pennsylvania. So it's not a group of new members that you can characterize as pro or anti-trade or any particular way. Most of them are, I think they're all not freshmen. And uh, most of them have, I think, reputations as fairly thoughtful people. So I don't think the committee is going to go off in some bizarre direction as a result of the new members. The Democrats haven't done their side yet. The problem they're going to have is they have to get from 25 down to 18. And there were a number of of people there that retired as well, but they're going to have to kick, kick some people off. And we'll see how far they have to go to do that when their roster comes out. Usually the ones that are kicked off Actually maintain their seniority and their claim to the committee. So if things change in the next election or even two elections or three elections in the future and the Democrats take over again, those people will come back on because they don't lose their seniority. But right now they only get the Dems only get 18. So there's going to be some people getting kicked off. Now that will probably be true for appropriations and rules as well. So look for, I think, continued stability on the committee. I think I mentioned last year, uh, last week, sorry. That there are, I think, some growing counter pressure building in various quarters, certainly in the business community, but I think in some parts of Congress, uh, that the administration needs to develop a policy that's um, somewhat more nuanced than the ones they, the one they've been pursuing so far. I mean, this was summarized by a famous exchange that Senator Cantwell had with Ambassador Ty in the Finance Committee last April, where Senator Cantwell said, "You know, I'm for sustainability. I'm for worker rights. I'm for all these labor provisions, but can't we do market access too?" And the point that I think is going to be made more forcefully by a lot of people, including some of the Republicans, is that, yeah, we ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that while the message is not going to be abandon what you're doing, it's going to be continue to do what you're doing because those are good things. But you're missing opportunities to do other things. And it would be important to do those other things as well, including market access things. And now I don't know the administration is going to buy that, but I think you're going to see increasing pressure on them to move in that direction.
1: Yeah, Just a couple of points. One is that obviously the Ways and Means Committee has very broad jurisdiction beyond trade as tax and health and pensions policy. So Social Security falls under ways and means. So there's a lot of, a lot on that agenda. And Bill's right, as, as narrowly divided as the Congress is, we've found a common enemy because the China panel was overwhelmingly approved in a, the establishment vote, though, 365 to 65. The one bipartisan action of the House of Representatives so far was to a select committee on how bad China is as a geopolitical threat. But in any case, I would also observe that I don't recall that Chairman Wyden has moved a a trade bill in his chairmanship. There was action when when Senator Baucus was chairman. Senator Wyden became chairman when Senator Baucus went to uh, become ambassador to China. But the trade bills were moved under Senator Hatch's chairmanship after the Republicans took took the majority in uh, 2015. There will be an interesting dynamic because finance committee is very important. Their leadership counts for a lot, and a Democratic-led finance committee will shape bills in ways that might not be exactly the way a Republican Ways and Means Committee would have done.
0: And there won't be much change on the Senate Finance Committee. The Democratic side is intact. No one left or was defeated. There will be some changes. Uh, they may even add one now that they, their majority is slightly bigger. There will be some changes on the Republican side because Senator and Senator Portman, and Senator Toomey all retired. And as of last Sunday, Senator Sass also had resigned. So actually, the Republican side of the committee is down four slots. They can't get them all back because that would make the committee divided equally, and Democrats aren't going to agree to that. There may be an effort the chairman usually likes to do this to make the committee smaller. When I worked up there, the committee, the finance committee had 20 members. and Now it has 28, which is member inflation. Uh, and this is an opportunity to shrink it. You know, leave the Democrats at 14 and let the Republicans be 12 and that would make it 26 and, you know, work your way back down. They may try to do that. Republicans, of course, won't want to do that. They'll like to fill as many slots as they can. But there will be at least, you know, a couple new faces on the Republican side to look at. But I think at the senior levels, don't expect much change.
2: Well, thank you all for another lively discussion. I think we can all go with Bill's takeaway, which is that there will be more discussions. So we look forward to hosting another episode next week, and we will touch base then.
1: Thanks, Emily. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.